A new mission to study the sun and a star gets funky. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A new mission to study the sun launched this week from Cape Canaveral. For the first time, scientists will get a look at the poles of the sun thanks to the Solar Orbiter spacecraft. The mission is a joint venture between the European Space Agency and NASA and will join other spacecraft studying the sun like the Parker Solar Probe. So how will Solar Orbiter help better our understanding of the sun and its effects here on Earth? We'll speak with NASA scientist Alex Young about the new era of heliophysics. Then, a listener wants to know a little more about Tabby's star. It's a star located in the constellation Cygnus. A space telescope captured some funky behavior of the star. So what's up? We'll ask our panel of expert scientists this week on our segment, I'd Like to Know. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. Boeing will have to review nearly one million lines of code that controls its Starliner space capsule. The task comes after a test mission to the International Space Station failed to reach its intended orbit due to a software glitch. The mission was cut short, and once on the ground, a Boeing and NASA team of investigators found another error with the code that could have damaged the spacecraft. The team is still investigating the issue, but this could cause a significant delay for Boeing to launch astronauts to the ISS under NASA's commercial crew program. Meanwhile, SpaceX says it's ready for a crew trip as early as this spring on its Crew Dragon capsule. A robotic explorer is one step closer to Mars. The Mars 2020 rover arrives at Kennedy Space Center this week ahead of a launch to the Red Planet this summer. The rover will look for signs of life on Mars using sophisticated scientific equipment. It will also pick up and prepare samples of the surface for a later mission that will send them back to Earth. Mars 2020 is launching from Cape Canaveral on a ULA Atlas V, with a Mars transfer window opening late July. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website, wmfe.org slash space, and give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The solar orbiter is on its way to the sun on an unprecedented mission to explore the poles of the sun. What scientists learn from this mission will help better understand space weather and predict bursts from the sun that impact our GPS satellites and power grids. Ahead of Sunday's launch, I met up with NASA's Alex Young at the Kennedy Space Center. He brought me up to speed on the mission's scientific goals and how this spacecraft will work with others to understand our closest star. We're, we're trying to ultimately fill in all the pieces of the sun and its influence on the solar system, the environment that it creates. And what's unique about Solar Orbiter is that it's giving us a unique perspective. I mean, we orbit in a plane, all the planets orbit in a plane in the solar system, kind of like a pancake, roughly aligned with the equator of the sun. And that means that our perspective, whether it be from the Earth or from a spacecraft, we're seeing the sun kind of straight on in that plane. And what we miss are the north and south poles. And these are really critical because the sun is a giant bar magnet, basically. You know, it has the structure of a bar magnet, actually much like the Earth, and so it has a north and south magnetic pole. And we don't observe those very easily from our perspective. So in order to do that, we have to move outside of that plane. We have to go 
in a tilt in our orbit. And this is one of the unique features of Solar Orbiter. Mm -hmm. And then it also brings a huge collection of instruments, 10 different instruments, which are giving us both remote sensing images and magnetic field observations, as well as what we call in situ, sort of in-person measurements, directly measuring the environment around the spacecraft as it's flying uh, in this orbit. Mm -hmm. But these polar views are really one of the key features that makes it so unique. We don't have detailed observations, both images and magnetic field measurements of these poles. And in order to really understand the physics of what's driving the sun, what's creating the activity, solar flares, coronal mass ejections, particle storms, the things that influence both us here on Earth, the things we put into space, and, and the people that we put into space. We'll talk a little bit about what that's going to do for future exploration, but you mentioned that this is in, in a pretty unique orbit. How, how difficult is it to get the spacecraft uh, off of this plane, out of the pancake, and uh, to be able to observe the poles of the sun? Well, it is, it's actually very difficult. And the orbit, when you have uh, planets orbiting the sun or any kind of orbits in space, this planar orbit is very natural, Okay. And in order to get out of that plane, in order to have this tilted orbit, requires a lot of energy and a lot of help. And so in this case, we can't just do it with the spacecraft alone. We can't just use the you know, rocket engines to do that. We have to get some help. And in this case, we use another planet. And this is a common thing we do. They're called a gravity assist. We're using the planet Venus to help us, to give us the gravity assist, the push we need, Multiple flybys of the planet Venus give us multiple pushes, allowing us to slowly tilt out of the plane, ultimately giving us the final orbit, which is, if you think about the, the actual you know, degrees, it's 24 degrees, and this is what is um, necessary uh, in order to have this unique orbit. Mm -hmm. How long will it take to get there? It's taking about three years to get to that orbit. And then once it's in the orbit, we have uh, about five months between each close approach to the sun. What does this thing look like? The spacecraft is, you know, it's kind of a squarish body. It's got a big solar um, uh, shield on the front facing the sun. And there are doors that allow us to open so that cameras can observe the sun, but also protect us. And then it's got big solar panels that come out very long on the, each side of the spacecraft, and those solar panels can be adjusted as you get closer to the sun. You don't need as much solar panel uh, exposure, and so you can, you can move the solar panels so they're at an angle. And then, of course, we have large antennas, these are uh, extended booms, we call them, to measure electric and magnetic fields. And then we have also dishes that are called you know, high and low-gain antennas to communicate, for the spacecraft to communicate with the Earth, um, for us to send back the data as we're making these flybys of the sun. I've got to assume it's pretty hot, right? <laughs> How is it protecting itself from the heat of the sun while it's, you know, making these observations. Right. So it is very hot. And there's a couple of things we do. And this is a real challenge in space because when you're in space, you don't have an atmosphere to, to transmit heat. And so when the spacecraft is facing the sun, it's very hot. And then the backside of the spacecraft away from the sun is very cold. 
So we not only have to have protective shields made of carbon composite fibers in order to protect from the heat, but we also have to have radiators uh, to both to radiate the heat away. And then we even, strangely enough, have heaters on the spacecraft to protect it when the part that's facing away from the sun gets too cold. Because we don't want to have these, these huge extremes. Because if you have material, and you can imagine one end of it is very cold, one end of it is very hot, that actually causes stresses and strains on the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. So regulating the heat, both the heat that's coming in and the heat that's going out, is really critical in order for the mission to operate successfully. Let's talk a little bit about the science of this mission. What, what questions uh, will this, uh, this probe help scientists like you answer? Well, there's, sort of, there's, there's big questions, sort of the overall question. So the overall question is, how does the sun generate its activity, which then drives this huge bubble around the solar system called the heliosphere? So all this stuff streams away from the sun. The sun's atmosphere is actually very hot. So one of the fundamental questions is, as we go from the surface of the sun out into the extended atmosphere called the corona, it actually gets hotter. We go from tens of thousands of degrees to many millions of degrees. And that means that the atmosphere streams away in this constant flow of particles and magnetic field called the solar wind. Okay, And so that moves away from the sun and actually creates a bubble of influence around the sun. And that, that uh, bubble moves in and out as the sun's activity uh, increases and wanes. We call that the heliosphere. So that's the first question we want to answer is how does the sun's activity drive this big structure around the solar system? But then when we step back into the details, there's the solar wind itself. So where is it accelerated? We know it's accelerated somewhere close to the sun's surface, but somewhere in this part of the atmosphere called the corona. And people may remember total solar eclipses. We had one in 2017. That is actually the part of the atmosphere, the corona, that we're interested in. The wispy part of it. Yeah, exactly. So that's the corona, and that is where... The solar wind is accelerated and drives out into space. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, the sun has this huge magnetic field that gets twisted up inside of it. And it gets twisted up going from very calm, relaxed magnetic field to being very twisted, dynamic, over um, about five and a half years, and then it goes back down to low activity. So that's a total of 11 years. That's the solar activity cycle, okay? So all of that magnetic energy, when the sun gets very active, is released explosively. We have huge flashes of light called solar flares, and we also have these huge eruptions of material, billions of tons of solar material and magnetic field, which stream away. We call these... Uh, coronal mass ejections, and these two types of eruptions drive space weather, which is the weather that that defines the environment of the solar system driven by the sun. Mm -hmm. Now, it's really important for us because this space weather, when it reaches Earth, it impacts our magnetic field and our atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Now, we see this there's actually a visible manifestation of it, the northern and southern lights. okay. Okay. But all of that energy, all that electromagnetic phenomena interacts with our technology. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Okay. It um, can disrupt our satellites, our ability to communicate, our ability to accurately use GPS. In the worst case scenario, it can even disrupt the power grids here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the questions that we want to answer with Solar Orbiter are how does this phenomenon happen? How does the mag changes in the magnetic field drive this kind of activity? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe uh, as we're getting a better understanding of the fundamental physics, we're going to reach the point where we can actually predict this, much like we do terrestrial weather here on Earth. Gotcha. So a better understanding of, of, of how the weather works will help us predict and forecast. Right. And this is really important not only for the technology that you and I depend on, because we have such a technologically, technologically dependent society, but the environment that it creates in space, outside of our atmosphere and outside of our magnetic field, can be quite um, treacherous and hazardous for the spacecraft we put into space, but also for the people that mm -hmm. we put into space. So if we're looking at, at deep space exploration, we're going to need to understand this. Right. right? You know, we have some protection mm -hmm. for people in the level of ISS. We have a, some magnetic field, um, but we're still outside of this sort of uh, cocoon that we live in. But as we go to places like the moon or even to Mars, we are outside of our protective shield that we have here on Earth. And so there's higher radiation. Um, the instrumentation, the electronics we have is susceptible. So not only are the people physically susceptible, but the technology they depend on is even more susceptible. Mm -hmm. And as we travel out to Mars, we also not only have the challenge of being on Mars, but the journey to Mars. Mm -hmm. Because you're exposed in space. You know, the only thing you have between you and what the sun's creating is the spacecraft itself. Mm -hmm. And that's... Um, you know, helpful but not really sufficient to fully, fully shield you from it. Mm -hmm. Alex Young, the last time we talked um, was for the launch of the Parker Solar Probe, which seems like yesterday. Yes. <laughs> but, um, I'm wondering how these two are going to work together. Are you going to be using data from both to kind of understand the sun? Absolutely. These are complementary missions. They're providing both parts of the puzzle, okay, Parker Solar Probe is going very, very close to the sun. Um, it's going to within 4 million miles, okay, which doesn't sound very far, but when the sun is 93-plus million miles away, that's actually Pretty quite close. close. <laughs> yeah, it's within 4%. Um, Parker is actually so close that we can't even directly image the sun because it is too bright. But it's giving us detail at that scale. And then as this phenomenon moves away from the sun, it changes the environment evolves, and so Solar Orbiter will be measuring that environment just outside of the realm that Parker will look at on its closest approach, but it will also be imaging the sun because it's not as close, okay? We'll be having closer detail, and then it'll be out of the normal plane of the solar system giving us a view of the poles. So all of these are giving us pieces of the puzzle because the environment is not the same as you're traveling away from the sun. It changes, it evolves, and the things that are moving away from the sun, the things that are impacting us here on Earth, change and evolve. And so to truly understand the phenomenon, we have to see how it changes. We have to see how it evolves. And we have to have the information, the measurements up close in those different realms in order to really understand all of the physics that 
ultimately goes into even our computer models. Mm -hmm. With two missions focused on the sun, I've got to think we're entering kind of a new era of heliophysics, right? I mean, is this is this kind of a golden era of understanding our, our closest is, star? It is a golden era because, you know, we've been studying the sun in quite detail from space for many decades, but we've been studying it from a distance. So Parker Solar Probe and Solar Orbiter are going into a whole new realm and studying these areas up close and giving us details that we couldn't really get unless we, we went there. But to think about it also is that we're now combining all these measurements with the ones that we're getting from a distance together to give us a more holistic picture. And we still have the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which is giving us detailed images of the sun to a resolution that we could never get unless we were here close to Earth because the data volumes are so big. Um, but we also have all of the other instruments which are measuring the impacts on the Earth, on other planets like Mars with the MAVEN spacecraft. And we now have the Daniel Inouye telescope in Hawaii called DKIST, which is giving us incredible detail because we can, on the ground, we can't see all the wavelengths we can see from space, but we can see visible and, and near-infrared uh, in detail because the telescope is so big. We can't put a telescope that big into space. But also, DKIST is allowing us to measure the coronal magnetic fields, which is in some ways kind of a holy grail of understanding the magnetic fields. They're very difficult to measure, and they're measurements that we can only do with this kind of telescope. So, again, all of these complex things are happening in different places, and they're all affecting each other, and we're going to be able to see them from all these different perspectives to start to piece together uh, this more complicated structure. It's, the solar system's big. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of things happening, and they have a huge influence, and it takes a lot of different spacecraft in a lot of different locations. And so, as you say, we're in a golden age to have all of these viewpoints. Mm -hmm. Finally, Alex Young, I've got to wonder, you know, if understanding our own star, does this have application to other fields of study, like exoplanets, like looking at other stars outside of our solar absolutely, system? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we've... We've come a long way in the exoplanets. You know, we had the first discovery of exoplanet in the 90s. We've had the Kepler mission that gave us more than 4,000 exoplanets. We have the TESS mission, which is going to eventually give us tens of thousands of exoplanets. But the one thing that's really changed is our whole idea of what it means to be habitable has changed. You know, for a long time, we thought about it in terms of what's called the Goldilocks zone. You know, is a planet close in the right location with respect to the star that liquid water is possible. If it's too close, it's too hot. If it's too far away, it's too cold. If it's in the Goldilocks zone, it's just right. But it turns out that the star itself, the activity of that star and the complex environment that it creates really changes what we, what we know to mean by habitability. And so in order to understand these other complex solar systems, the other stellar um, relationships between exoplanets and their parent star, we've got to understand our own. Because we have incredible detail here with our own sun that we can never get in other planets and other exosystems. So taking the knowledge that we gather here about our own star system will be applicable for all the star systems we've found and all the ones we'll find in the future. 
Fascinating. Super exciting mission. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Alex. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was Alex Young, Associate Director for Science of NASA's Heliophysics Science Division. Still to come, an F-star gets funky. What's happening with Tabby Star? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. It's time for I'd Like to Know, where we take your questions and put them to our panel of experts. This week, Dave from Morristown, New Jersey asks, Is there any recent update on Tabby Star, which Kepler found and is so far unique in how its light fluctuates? While I know it's probably not aliens, writes Dave, it is fascinating because it is unique, and I'm curious if there are any recent updates, studies, theories on the topic. Well, thanks for that question, Dave. To help answer that, we're joined by Jim Cooney, Addie Dove, and Josh Caldwell. They're scientists at the University of Central Florida, and they host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Josh kicks off our conversation describing just how funky this star is. Well, like many stars, it exhibits some fluctuations in brightness, but usually those are either very young stars or very old stars. And Tabby's star is sort of like the sun. It's a main sequence star. It's uh, a little bit brighter than the sun, but uh, it was being observed for looking for fluctuations in brightness due to a planet crossing in front of it. This was Kepler, right? Kepler initially. And they saw some very sudden and abrupt large decreases in brightness, like 10 or 15 percent. Then it comes back to its normal brightness, hangs out there for a while. Then there have been some additional fluctuations in brightness not following any obvious sort of pattern. And for a star of this type, we don't really understand a stellar physics process that's going on that could be explaining that. So then it leads to all sorts of fanciful speculation about what could be orbiting that star that Uh is blocking some of the light occasionally and not on a sort of regular rhythm like a planet would be. Massive alien spacecraft, right? For example. (laughs) Alien megastructure was a proposal for a while. Right. Or maybe the Death Star blew up a planet and it's the debris or something like that. So all sorts of exciting uh, suggestions. Um, Since we've collected more data, they suggest that it's probably small particles that are blocking the star and not large particles. And we can tell that by the differences in the amount of light that are blocked at different colors of light. It tells us something about the size of the particles that are in between us and the star. How do you do that? What's the process? Basically, you're looking at the spectrum of the light that you receive from the star. That means how much light at different wavelengths of light. Put that all together, and we're still not entirely sure, but it's probably some sort of debris cloud. Okay. Whether it's a debris cloud, something that broke up, or something that's going together, that's a big question. Yeah, so one of the more recent hypotheses is that it was some sort of... um, like a planet with some sort of exo with a moon around it. So it's a, like the planet has these strong tidal forces and a moon actually got broken up and is sort of distributed in particles around it. Um, and is that's what's causing the weird brightening and dimming huh. of this star. And there's actually been a bunch of other stars that have been observed since then because um, astronomers have been looking for these kinds of objects that have similar sort of dimming and then uh, brightness changes yeah. events that have so these brightness to be changes. A- <clears throat> Not to be a Debbie Downer, which I often am, uh, but I think actually a, a better possible explanation is just stellar astrophysics. A lot of people really want this to be something blocking the light from the star that's mm-hmm. causing this dimming, uh, but there is a lot we don't understand about stars and their inner workings, and stars do get dimmer and brighter just because of things that are happening interior to the star. And Josh is right that you know this is the kind of star that doesn't do that as regularly as some other kinds of stars. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. So this star actually is kind of very close to a size where 
stars that are bigger than it do one kind of thing on their inside, and stars that are smaller than it do a different kind of thing. And because it's at that transition, it may be that it sometimes does one thing and sometimes does another thing, and therefore sometimes gets brighter and sometimes gets dimmer. And I think, uh, for my money, that's the most He's, reasonable explanation. You're putting your this. money on I'm stellar my, astrophysics. Oh, but I already spent my money earlier uh, <laughs> on the $2 billion, week, dollars, on, yeah. on right. the $3 billion Uranus <laughs> mission. But if I win... Well, if, if, if I wins. get more money <laughs> than I'm betting it on. So it's uh, not an alien so the, superstructure. So the, probably the planetary scientists here in the room are betting on planetary debris or something like that out there, and the cosmologist is betting on stellar astrophysics. <laughs> Seems about right. It's, well, a, it's an F-type star for funky. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we know for sure? I mean, is, is the only observation we can make with these space-based telescopes like Kepler or TESS? Or, or how, how can we confirm what's actually happening? Well, it's 1,500 light years away, so we're not going there. And, uh, we well, can... not this week. Right, <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> not until uh, Jim gets another paycheck. <laughs> yeah. We'll certainly be continuing to monitor it. Maybe some patterns will emerge. And we're looking at a lot of stars. And as Jim said, maybe we'll learn more about stars in this particular mass range and start seeing other stars exhibiting similar patterns. As we collect more data, then you can rule out certain hypotheses. That's just the nature of the game. It's like... Somebody throws out an idea, oh, it's an alien megastructure, and then uh -huh. we collect some more data and say, oh, no, the spectral observations are inconsistent with that. Uh -huh. And so we may be able to, either from observations of other stars, say, oh, this looks like something that's going on with other F-type stars, and that would mean that I – Addy and I would owe Jim some money. <laughs> so he wins the bet. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because Tabby Star was originally discovered as part of the Kepler data set, like we mentioned, mm -hmm. um, which was actually looking for planets, but we've just we've discovered a lot of stellar variability as part of the Kepler data set because it was just staring at stars. Right. Um, but there's a lot of other surveys out there, and surveys are where we stare at different parts of the sky for long periods of time or lots of different parts of the sky. Um, to see what's happening out there. So astronomers have a bunch of these surveys that they do with ground-based telescopes usually mm -hmm. to look at lots of stars. And so they're starting to find more. That's how they're finding more of these that have the variability that we see. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like with, with something like TESS, which is kind of, you know, Kepler's, you know, successor, successor is, mm -hmm. are, are we going to see more of these, these things before? And is there an effort to actually look for them? Uh, potentially. Um, so a lot of the surveys that are looking for this type of thing are looking for other stellar phenomena or supernovae or, or other yeah, other stellar phenomena. Um, but it's definitely it's like TESS and all of these telescopes that are staring at lots of different stars will get a lot of cool stellar astrophysics out of it, too. And maybe an alien superstructure. Maybe. The, the, the key thing about this one is Kepler stared at stars for years. Mm -hmm. TESS is generally looking at any particular star for a little bit of a shorter yeah. time period. And this star stayed perfectly calm and normal, not doing anything weird for over a year at a time. And then it does some weird fluctuations and oscillations and things like that uh, in the brightness. So, But there are a lot of stars out there. There are a lot of telescopes pointed at them. <laughs> so I'm, we're definitely seeing other variable stars of all different types. So uh -huh. it just takes time to put that all together. This non-scientist still thinks it's aliens. So uh, thank you all. <laughs> That was Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. They're scientists at the University of Central Florida, and they host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you're like Dave and you've got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org, or find the show on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Danielle Pryor. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.